Hey, we're in week two. Uh, exciting uh, new series, Into the Wilderness. Um, I want to start off just with this. It's a quote. I didn't find the quote. I don't even think it's accurate, but it's close enough. Um, you've heard this. Crisis doesn't make the person as much as it reveals the person. Right? We, we've all heard of that, that idea that, that somehow, and, and the, the story that comes to my mind is Scully, right, the, the pilot, and he, he, he made a big deal of the fact that he didn't land that plane in the Hudson just, just suddenly acquiring skills and intuitions and all that. He, he reverted to his training, right? The, the crisis revealed what the training had produced in that man. The crisis didn't produce that man. It just revealed his character. And in the wilderness, biblically speaking, is where true allegiances are, are found, are known, Throughout the Bible, the wilderness is that place where God works with people. I don't know if he needs to get us alone, away from everything that, that fights in on us or not. But throughout the Bible, you know that if you're getting pulled out into the wilderness, you're going to get a talking to. It's just going to happen. It's kind of like a, an adult timeout. I remember in 1981, I, I'm a major volleyball fan. Uh, the U.S. men's team were supposed to do really well. Marv Dunphy, the coach from Pepperdine, um, took them on a backpacking trip in Colorado in, in horrible conditions, and he did it all on purpose, right? He wanted the, the, the entire team, and he wanted the players and the coaches to recognize in each other what happens when the pressure is really on, right? So the, the coaches needed to know this about the players. The players needed to know this about each other as they played together on the court, and the players needed to know this about themselves, right? So this was this huge two-week testing ground in the mountains, the wilderness, not the desert, but the high mountains of Colorado. And the stories that came out of that were pretty horrific, but they went on to win like two or three straight gold medals. It, it was an amazing thing. Throughout the Bible story, God has tested the loyalty of his servants too. Sometimes successes, sometimes fail, an epic failure right there at the beginning, Adam and Eve, the forbidden fruit, colossal failure. But then we have a series of successes. And, the, and even in the successes, we've got a little bit of failure mixed in, but at the end of the day, we've got some successes. We've got Noah building the ark. You know how much faith that took and how much loyalty to God that took with your neighbors bugging you and harassing you day in and day out, right? Job and suffering, Abraham and the sacrifice of Isaac, Moses, all of his insurmountable odds, and Elijah, you know, Jezebel and her prophets of Baal, and Jonah and the whale, and Isaiah and all of his opponents, a lot of success stories, right? A, kind of a, a fail at the beginning, and, and then we're going to kind of wrap this up with probably the biggest epic fail, the all-important Israel in the wilderness fiasco. One big colossal failure. And it's this one colossal fa failure that's addressed in the temptation narratives of Matthew and Luke, and we're not going to look at Matthew and Luke today. So if you were thinking, we're going to look at all that, we're, we're actually um, not going to look at Israel's colossal failures. Um, that will be for Matthew and Luke, and we're going to look at that over the next three weeks. And here's what I want to do. I'm going to give you a little bit of homework. I know you love this. You're excited. To prepare for the next three weeks, I want to encourage you to read Deuteronomy 6, 7, and 8, right? Deuteronomy 6, 7, and 8. And in those three chapters, God is spending a great, great deal amount of time explaining to the peoples that they need to be faithful, 
right? They need to be faithful just as he is so faithful to them, has been faithful, will be faithful, and will always be faithful. And it's out of these three chapters that Satan pulls out some half-truths. And Jesus responds with the full truth, shutting up Satan. So to really get the meat of what we're going to be looking at in the next three weeks, Deuteronomy 6 through 8, we'll have a test at the end of the week. So while Matthew and Mark address Israel's failures in the promised land, Mark takes on the cosmic fail in the garden. Mark's focus, at least for the temptation, is on Adam rather than on Israel's temporal role of the nation. Now the temptation for us, for readers, is to supplement Mark's rather short account, two verses, Now, I've included the baptism because Mark includes it as as one kind of narrative. I'm going to show you why that's so important in just a little bit. But it's so tempting, right, to read Mark's two verses and say, well, I I mean, I got to go to Matthew's 11 verses and I got to go to Luke's 13 verses to fill out this story because Mark doesn't seem to be telling me anything, right? He's incredibly brief. Two verses, that's it. But in this case, we got to let Mark be Mark, right? Mark's got a purpose for writing. He's got a reason for including and not including things. And his account is a little bit different than Matthew and Luke. And believe it or not, you're going to wonder why didn't John have include the temptations of Jesus. Um, But as we're going to learn in a couple weeks, um, there actually is a section in John that is the parallel for the temptations of Christ, fascinating stuff in the book of John. We're going to get into that in a couple weeks. Don't miss out that. In other words, the focus of the temptation narratives of all three gospel writers is that Jesus has undone the failures of both Adam and Israel, right? Jesus tested. He was tested. He passed as both the second Adam and as God's first son, Israel, right? He becomes, fulfills that role of God's son, Israel, And it's just for a lot of different reasons, a lot of different reasons. We're not going to go into those. Um, Mark focuses on Adam's failure rather than on Israel's failure. And and again, he just leans into Adam's failure while Matthew and Luke lean into Israel's failure. But here's the strange and difficult part for the, the modern reader. Neither Adam or Israel are ever mentioned in the temptation narratives. Right, so how, how do theologians and Bible scholars and preachers all arrive at all of this behind the scenes secret? No, it's not. There, there's, there's not a lot of secret knowledge, right? We're just so separated from these ancient words that they don't hit us in the face like they hit them. So the job of the preacher is to kind of bring up some points of reference to help you feel the full impact of those two verses because they were impactful, Two verses, but I, but I need to kind of give you some points of reference this morning so that you react in the same way that those first century Christians reacted when they read Mark's gospel. Like, you're going to do the same thing, right? Kind of get ready. Now, even though Adam and Israel, again, aren't mentioned, if you had been a decent student at the synagogue school, the words and the imagery used by these writers just would have sprung to life. Right? You, you would have been bringing back into your mind to connect with what the writers are saying and what Jesus is doing. All of the Old Testament writers, they would have just flooded your memory because these were your textbooks in school. Right? The dots would connect between the Old Testament narratives and the things that Jesus did and the things that the New Testament writers wrote about. For example, I can say I cannot tell a lie. 
And you all immediately, your head is filled. But if you're not from America, you would just think, well, that's great. Jerry doesn't tell lies. Yeah, whatever. But when I say I cannot tell a lie, your mind immediately goes to George Washington, the founding of a nation, a founding father. He was honest. Maybe I can say a house divided cannot stand. If you're from some other country, yeah, you've got, you've got connections to that. But if you're American, that means something very specific. Your head is immediately filled with the Civil War images of Abraham Lincoln in a horrible, horrible war between the states. Same with the people of Israel. When you say certain things, for example, Psalm 22 on the cross, right? Christ begins the first couple lines of Psalm 22, but he doesn't have to finish it. And the fact of the matter is it starts out rather gloomy, right? Why have you forsaken me? But then all of the people listening, they knew the end of the psalm. Jesus didn't have to read the whole thing. Immediately their minds went to the end of the psalm, and the end of the psalm is victorious. It's not doom and gloom. It's victorious. Same thing goes on in these passages that we're going to look at this morning, right? I'm going to kind of help you become an Israelite of the first century. So hang in there. I'm going to jump back to two verses of Mark that he adds to our understanding of Jesus' temptation in the wilderness. But what I have to say, and again, I, 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 tell, I say this all the time, we, we got to back up just a little bit. It's going to make sense if we first start with the baptism because that's what Mark does. He connects these two events, and I don't want to separate them because he didn't separate them. So we're going to look at Jesus' baptism very quickly. It's recorded by Mark immediately, and in fact, Mark uses that exact word immediately before, Jesus, before the Spirit sends Jesus out into the wilderness, right? Mark chapter 1, verse 9 says this, at that time Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Now again, I'm just going to say right away, I recognize that there are people listening that might not be real versed. John, there's two Johns going on here. Even when I'm studying, I'm reading writers, and I'm thinking, oh, is this guy talking about John the Evangelist or John the Baptist? And And so this is John the Baptist we're talking about here. We're not in the Gospel of John the Evangelist, the Gospel writer, just in case anybody was getting confused. All right. Now, to any thinking person, baptism of Jesus represents a problem, right? The baptism that John preached was a baptism of repentance, which means people have sinned, and they want to confess their sins, and they want to commit to living a life free of sin, but what about Jesus? He was, he was the sinless one. What's he doing being baptized, right? Wasn't it uh, maybe unnecessary and kind of, to a certain degree, irrelevant, But the fact of the matter is, for Jesus and for us, there were good reasons for him to be baptized. I think this is good reasons for us, too. The first reason is that he had made a decision, right? He had had a moment where he went to the Jordan, right? He heard that John was preaching. He had been waiting, my guess, 30 years. That's how old he was. Maybe he was only waiting the last bunch of years, but time was going. He knew he was waiting for a sign, and then John the Baptist starts preaching. We get the impression that Jesus like, okay, now i got to make a decision. I have a vague idea of what this is all going to entail. I think it's not going to be good for me, but it's going to be good for humanity. i got some choices to make. And here's what we need to understand. Jesus had choices to make. He could have said no, and he could have failed the test because he was 100% human. Yes, he was 100% divine also, but we know from Philippians that he what? He emptied himself of all of those divine prerogatives so that we could have a high priest that understands what it's like to be a human. So yes, Jesus could have failed the test. If it wasn't a test, if if he couldn't have said no, then it really wasn't a test. It was all play. 
kind of play acting, right? But where Adam the man failed, right? Jesus Christ is the second Adam, right? We needed him to succeed. We can't have all these failures. It makes life really difficult for us. So, Nazareth, Nazareth, where he grew up, peaceful and home. But Jesus knew that the time had come. But it was also a moment at this baptism of identification. It's true that Jesus didn't need to repent from sin, but there was a movement of the people back to God, and Jesus had made a decision that he was going to be a part of that movement back to God. And so he identifies himself with that movement, a movement of people who are far from God being invited to come back into God's presence. And here's the really great identification. A lot of people can make, you know, if I had prostate cancer or something like that in a man, I could very easily see myself or other men jumping on that cause, right, and beginning to hold fundraisers for that cause because you know that cause. That cause is near and dear to your heart. But how amazing it is with somebody who identifies with somebody in a situation that's not like theirs, a very, very wealthy person to decide, I'm going to identify with the poor. I'm going, to, I'm going to put myself in their position. Even though it makes no difference to me, I do not gain a thing, I'm going to put myself out and let them gain something. And that's exactly what Jesus does for the sake of others. And it's exactly what he's calling us to do. Whether we're poor, sick, disease, or any of those other kind of things in this world, he calls us to identify with those people. Now, I want to jump back to Mark's gospel for a moment. It says this in verse 10 and 11. Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. I want you to remember that phrase. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. I want you to notice something. We're going to see this in the next couple of weeks in, in Matthew and Luke. You get the impression almost that the Spirit is talking to the crowd also, right? Hey, this is my son, right? But in Mark's, you don't get that impression at all. It's, it's a very, almost a one-on-one, right? The son and the father. You are my son, whom I love. And with you, I am well pleased, Right, that, that's a mountaintop. That's a mountaintop experience for Jesus. That, that this is huge, huge, huge. And I get the distinct impression that when we identify with the down and out, right, God is well pleased. And from this, this two verses, we got two more decisions, moments that Jesus made, that Jesus had. Right, the third one was approval. At his baptism, he submitted his decision to God. He identified with those far from God, and that decision was unmistakably approved. And last and finally, equipping. The Spirit descended like a dove, right? And you get this, this picture of a very gentle. And again, in the Old Testament, the dove's got many meanings, but one of the main ones is, is just gentleness, the gentleness of a dove, while Matthew and Luke, and again, we're going to look at this in the next three weeks, they talk a lot about John, you know, the axe is at the, the, the root 
right? And there's going to be this, this, this consuming fire. There's this, this terrible sifting, right? This message of, of doom and gloom. But in Mark, from the very, very beginning, we got, we got a dove. We got a dove. Jesus is going to conquer. He's going to conquer, but it's going to be a conquest of love. There's not going to be violence. That's not the way he's going to do it. He's not going to do it by the way the kingdoms of this world. And here's why we needed to look first at his baptism before we head out to Jesus, with Jesus into the wilderness. Mountains are always surrounded by valleys, right? We know this. Many of you have had or are currently experiencing or maybe will one day experience a call by God on some part of your life. It might not be your whole life. He might not call you to be a preacher, drop everything and start doing that whole thing. He might just call you to be a Sunday school teacher, Sunday school helper, something along those lines. Again, many of you have had this call, are currently feeling it, or you're going to feel it, which, by the way, includes every single person in this room. I just don't want to leave anybody out on this. You've had similar moments that Jesus experienced, right? You've made a decision. You identified your mission field. You identified with your mission field. You feel God's approval, and you know you're equipped with the same spirit that Jesus had in the desert. But know this. Just as Jesus and every other Bible hero found out, and just as probably every person that's ever lived between then and now has found out, Mountains are surrounded by valleys. All right, to get off that mountaintop experience and get to work, you're going to have to cross some ugly valleys, valleys of doubt, valleys of second thinking, valleys of criticism. Right, there's plenty of them, and they're surrounding every mountain, and you've got to cross them. But Mark's got really, really good news for us this morning. He's got great news for us this morning. Right? We fail because Adam failed, but we can cross the valleys successfully because Jesus crossed them successfully. And that's what Mark wants to tell us this morning. Jesus, Jesus wins, so we win, right? Mark first, or chapter 1, verse 12 says this, at once, right? You catch that at once, mountain, valley, boom. <laughs> There's, you can't jump over it. You, you, you got to go through it. At once, the Spirit sent him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. I like that word tempted. A lot of Bible discussion about that. Is it testing? Is it tempted? Actually, the Greek word, both right? From one perspective, certainly from Satan's perspective, he sees it as a temptation. He wants you to fall to that temptation. He wants you to fail, right? That's, that's the way he's looking at it, but God's looking at it differently. He's seeing it as a test that he's equipping you to pass, and when you pass it, you're going to find out something about yourself. You're strong. When you are in the Spirit, when you are in Christ, you are strong. You are more than conquerors, so either word you want to use, tested, tempted, they both work because that's the word being used. That's actually actually the Greek word being used. And that's all Mark has to say about Satan, right? That's, I mean, that's it. In Matthew and Luke, man, we're going to have Luke, or excuse me, Satan becomes one of the key players. He gets like a star billing, major role in the story here, nothing. No challenges, no temptations. Here's, here's the second thing that I want to kind of point out about Mark's account of the temptation. This isn't, an, uh, this isn't about his whole gospel, but how he handles the temptation. His focus is on Jesus in the wilderness. It's not really on Satan and the temptations. He's focusing on Jesus in the wilderness. 
And here's what's super important to understand about Jesus in the wilderness. Again, I already mentioned this. He could have failed, just like Adam and Eve did all those years ago in the garden. And again, this is important because we have the very same spirit made available to Jesus. And now back to Mark. Here's what many theologians have noticed. This is the fascinating thing I want to share with you this morning. In a single sentence, in a single sentence, Mark brings to the minds of his first century readers several huge, can't possibly miss signs, right, that connect Jesus with Adam and Eve and the garden. One sentence, here it is. He was with the wild animals and the angels attended him. Now, again, we read that and, okay, let's move on to verse 14. <laughs> where's, where's the meat? Where, where's the details? This is all Mark chooses to tell us. And again, we have to let Mark be Mark. He could have included a lot of other things, but he wanted us, he wanted to shift our focus, not, not on Israel and all the different ways they messed up, but on a much more basic fundamental, foundational, do we trust God? Do we remain loyal to God in the wilderness? And, and that's what he wants us wants to find out. He wants us to find out, and, and he wants to watch. And again, I know it sounds like pastor's pulling things from his hat again, but check this out. Listen carefully. One of the very first things that they would remember as this was being Red, because it would have been red, right? One of the very first things that they would have remembered was a cosmic battle in Psalm 91. Listen to this. And again, and I'm going I'm to show you a couple psalms here, and I don't want you to get too tangled up in the words. Don't get too exact. Just feel what's being portrayed here, right? The psalms were meant to, to produce emotions in us, not necessarily any kind of doctrinal stuff, right? So feel what's going on here. For he will command his angels, command his angels concerning you to guard you in all of your ways. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. You will tread on the lion and the cobra and you will trample the great lion and the serpent. Right? You get in a feel. This is a cosmic battle involving angels and wild animals. And immediately, if you were a first century Jewish listener, this all would have come to mind like, wow. There's a battle going on in the wilderness involving angels and wild animals, right? But here's the kicker. Here's the amazing thing. Even in such a battle, the people knew that there was protection for God's people. Because also, again, Psalm 22 would have come to mind. Listen to this. Dogs surround me. This is David speaking. And again, a thousand years before Christ, but at the time of Christ, as the time of Christ began to arrive, the prophets and the people would look back on this prophecy and begin to go, whoa, 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 there's something else going on here. You'll catch it in just a minute. Dogs surround me. A pack of villains encircle me. They pierce my hands and my feet. All my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garments. You guys catching how that became a more up-to-date prophecy of the Messiah? But you, Lord, do not be far from me. You are my strength. Come quickly to help me. Deliver me from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dogs. Rescue me from the mouth of the lion. Save me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will declare your name to my people in the assembly. I will praise you at the end of the day when all this happens. Right, so finally, there's this cosmic battle, but the people also know that they are protected. 
right? God protects his people in the midst of this cosmic battle. And then finally, a picture of the garden, right? This is where it all comes together for them, kind of as a way of explaining what things might look like. This is Isaiah, by the way. This isn't a psalm. This is Isaiah speaking of of, of the day when, and again, as a prophecy, the day when Jesus returns. Isaiah chapter 11, verses 6 and 7, the wolf will live live with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat. The calf and the lion and the yearling together, and a little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear. Their young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like a fox. The infant will play near the cobra's den, and the young child will put his hand into the viper's nest. You're feeling... This is is drawing on your emotions, right? They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Listen, when we face temptations, tests, trials, suffering, there's a lot of names that we can stick on that one, right? We know that Jesus conquered them. And the power of the Spirit. And that same Spirit is a gift to us. And it's in His presence that brings victory, enables us to be more than conquerors. I want to close by reading a section from Paul's letter to the Romans. This is from chapter 8. They can just feel his words. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies Who then is the one who condemns? No one. No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Because Jesus went into the wilderness. And we're going to find out that he had quite a time there, but just before we get into all that, he was in the wilderness. God tested him. It wasn't a foregone conclusion. Jesus could have said no. But again, because he said yes. We have that high priest now. So as we prepare to receive communion this morning, some things to remember. Mountains are always surrounded by valleys. But God uses those valleys, right, to test us, to make us stronger, not weaker, right, to enable us to combat sin, not to succumb to it. And where Adam failed, Jesus succeeded. And that same spirit is God's gift to us. 
And this morning, I just want to ask you to receive that free gift. With his broken body and his blood poured out, right, we have victory. We don't have to succumb to sin. We don't have to. We do a lot. And we're covered. We're covered by the love of Christ. Father, we thank you. That you led your spirit to lead your son into the <coughs> into the wilderness. And Father, there your son revealed who he truly was, your son. For that fact alone, we have victory. So, Father, we thank you. We thank you for your son, that he went all the way to the cross for us. Thank you for your Holy Spirit, Father, who constantly reminds us, convicts us, instructs us, guides us, so that we can live a life pleasing to you. Thank you, Father. In your son's name I pray.